1 John chapter 2, verse 28 is where we're going to begin. Last week, I actually kind of touched on uh, verse 28 a little bit uh, because I, I thought we were going to make it through verse 29 last week and we didn't. Um, but I wanted to back up just a little bit and touch a couple things in verses 28 and 29 because it really kind of leads into chapter 3, uh, verse 1 and the verses following that. So I want to begin reading in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. Says this, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right is, has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. So I wanted to back up a little bit to, from what we talked about last week, because in verse 28, it talks about continuing in Christ. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to teach believers to abide in or to remain in or to continue in Christ. And, and, and John was so anxious for the, the, the spiritual lives of these believers that he said, says over and over again throughout this letter that they should continue in him. They should continue in Christ. And, and that word translated continue, it's the same word that's used in other places, but it's also translated abide, uh, which, which I like that because it has a sense of, of living in, not just, not just uh, believing, but living in something. And so uh, and the word conveys connection or, or closeness, both in faith and in doctrine. And so really what John is saying when he says continue in him, he's saying to be intimately attached to Jesus. And that's the whole idea of what he's trying to say there. And in John's gospel, the same word appears in the well-known chapter on the vines and the branches. And, and we know that I'm not going to go through this. I'm not going to take the time to do it. But you know what, where he talked about that he says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. We are the, as Christians, are, are branches and we're to remain in or abide in Christ who is the vine. And be, because he is the one that provides health and nourishment to us. And a failure, here's the key, a failure to remain in him will quickly re result in a loss of, of vitality and fruitfulness. You know, you cut a, a branch off of an apple tree. It's a funny thing. That branch is never going to bear any more apples. You ever notice that? You can't bear fruit. You can't remain alive if you're not attached to the, to the vine. In the same way that a tree branch cannot bear fruit, and it cannot remain alive if it's detached from, from the tree. It cannot live apart from the vine. Then in verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, that word is translated if in this translation uh, could also be translated since. That's the idea behind it. He's not saying, you know, if or if, or if not. He, he's really saying since you know that he is righteous. And, and, and we know that, that God is righteous. And he argued that, that God is righteous, therefore, he is the source of righteousness. And if a person's actions demonstrate right, righteousness, then he or she acquired this righteousness from God by being given a new nature and by abiding in Christ. That's what he's saying. So now here's, here's the part where it gets a little funky for us. We have to Understand and interpret scripture, not only in light of what it says in a single verse, but in light of all of scripture. But it sounds as if John is saying that doing good things saves you. Because he says, if you're righteous, then you're born of him. And it makes it sound like if you do the right things, then, then that's, that's what's going to save you. But that's not what he's saying, because he makes it clear in his writings and other places. We know from other scripture, we know that that's not the case. Uh, and so he, he's not saying that people become children of God by doing right, but he's saying something actually very similar to what James taught in his letter, because what he is saying is that doing the right things, doing good things, doing right is a sign that people have already become 
God's children. It's not, it's not how we become God's children, but it's a result of being a child of God. So good works don't save us, but they are the, the outward evidence that we have been saved. And we, we see it in Ephesians chapter 2, very, very famous passage. We tend to quote verses 8 and 9, but I, I really feel like when we quote verses 8 and 9, uh, without putting verse 10 on there, that we sort of lose part of the nuance and part of the picture of it. Because he says, Paul wrote, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And we often stop right there, and that's there's nothing wrong with stopping there. It's really powerful to, to point out the fact that we are saved by grace through faith, faith, and it's not our works. Our works have nothing to do with our salvation. But there's a new nuance that's added in verse 10. He says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to what? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he's saying we're not saved by, by our works, but we are saved to do something. We are saved. And after we're saved, we will do righteous things. We will act in a different way. So good works are the result of our salvation. They're not the cause of our salvation. And you, you can think of it this way. When a child uh, exhibits the nature of his or her parents, people can tell to whom that child belongs. How many of you have ever had that moment when you're watching your child growing up and maybe, probably, maybe you didn't say it about yourself, but maybe your spouse said to you, your child did something and they look at you and say, that's you. You ever had that moment or, or you look at the child and you say, oh man, they get that from me. They're, they're just acting just like me right there. Well, and, and so people see that and they say, oh man, that's like a little, that's like a little Chuck there or something like that. And, and, and the, the point is, is that if we're children of God, then his nature and who he is will begin to be seen in us. So because he is righteous, people should be able to look at our lives and say, oh man, that one belongs to God. That's the idea behind it, is that the works don't save us, but they reflect what God has already done in our lives. Then at the very end of verse 29, he says something there that's significant, and we're going to spend a little time that kind of ties into some other things in chapter 3, because he says everyone that... Everyone who does what is right has been born of him, has been born of God. And, and being born of God is really sort of a, uh, it's, it's a very distinctive theme that's found in John's writing. No other New Testament writer deals with this concept with the way that John does. Uh, first mentioned here in 1 John, it occurs twice more in this very passage, the second time in chapter 3, verse 9. And it occurs five more times later on in the letter. Chapter 4, verse 7, chapter 5, verses 1, 4, and 18. And in verse 18, it actually comes up twice in that verse. And then the strongest connection outside of 1 John is actually found in his gospel in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, when Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be what? Born again, or as some translations say, born from above. So... The, the idea of being born of God refers to spiritual rebirth that is instigated by God through the Holy Spirit that brings about a dramatic new life. And part of what John is trying to bring across here is that the new birth precedes new behavior. And, and again, new behavior does not bring about a new birth. You, you can't create a new you. But a new birth that's instigated by God brings about, about new behavior. And, and our practice in life is proof of our parentage. Uh, the, the righteous Savior and His work produces righteous saints. That's the idea. And then uh, uh, John's statement at the end of, of chapter 2 that believers have been born of God, I, I just think that just leads John to this, this statement of marvel here at the love of God. As he said in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, let me find it again. He's, he said, uh, 
see what great, great love the Father has lavished on us. And I, and I like, actually like some of the other older translations because it gives a sense of wonder because like King James, it says, behold, there's just some sort of a sense of wonder in that word. And it just has a, the word see is just kind of bland, but, but he's just amazed by this. And the, and the Greek word that's translated how great, it's very interesting because what it does, it speaks of something that has come from another country or something exotic, something amazing, something beyond what has previously been experienced. So the translation actually could read, behold, what exotic love the Father has poured on us. Is, is, it could read that way. Uh, it, the idea is that the love of God comes from another world that it seems foreign to the human race because it's so different than anything that we have in this world. And, and this love, that love of God has been lavished on us. It's been poured out on us. There's another way to say that. As shown by the fact, as he says, he says, behold, what, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be, what? Called the children of God that God allows us to be called his children. The, the fact that we are called his children means that we bear his name. And, and, and this, this language that he's using here actually sort of reminds me of the idea of adoption. Um, because a, adoption changes everything for a child, doesn't it? Um, I mean, rather than growing up in poverty, perhaps, then the child grows up with every need provided. Rather than growing up in a home destroyed by drug abuse, the, the child thrives in a family guided by love. Rather than trying to survive on the streets, the child is given every chance at a healthy future. A child's environment, relationships, wealth, opportunities, and prospects are all permanently altered through adoption. And, 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 and when a child is adopted, what, is it, what happens? The child takes the name of his or her new family and enjoys all the benefits of a child born into that family. That's why this, I, this language of, that we're called the children of God reminds me of, of this. And that's already incredible enough to think uh, of this idea of adoption and being adopted by God and uh, that, that he would adopt us into his family, that we would be called children of God, that we would have his name. And, and it's not just here, but that picture is found in Scripture in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17, where it talks about we have the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, which is Abba is a very intimate term. It'd be more like us saying, Daddy. Um, it, it's just beautiful, powerful word picture to help us understand what Jesus has done for us. But here's the, here's the thing I want you to see is that here, though, John is not talking about adoption. And we know that because he doesn't just stop at saying we are called children of God. If he had stopped there, we could say he was probably talking about adoption, but he's going further than that. We have been called the children of God, and that's a great privilege that we have that's been given to us by Christ. But John goes further, and he says in the next sentence, and that is what we are. That is what we are. John's calling attention to the wonderful fact that God has actually given birth to believers as his very own children. And when he talks about that word children, and actually the Greek word actually refers back toward birth more than it does uh, a, a child itself, but it, it, it focuses more on the birth. And then we're going to see in, in verse 9 of chapter 3 that there's another emphasis there. We're going to see something there. But but, but he's calling attention to the, to the fact that God has actually given birth to believers as his very own children. That, that's the rebirth. And, and, you know, when you're born, you're born with a set DNA, right? You, you don't get to change that later. But, but when, you, when you're reborn, in a sense, God gives you the spiritual DNA of his family. And you don't get that. You don't get the, uh, the DNA of the family that's adopting you, do you? You get everything else, but you don't get their DNA. But here, this is, this is what he's saying. He's saying it's not, just, it's not just the spirit of adoption. As wonderful as that is, as great a picture that is, and that is a biblical picture of what Christ has done. 
but he's giving us another, another sort of think of it like a diamond that every time you turn the diamond, you see a different facet. And he's giving us a view from a different angle to help us to see this. And the, the emphasis, uh, what, he, he, what he's saying is former children of the devil literally become children of God through a process of rebirth. And th this emphasis is seen in chapter 3, verse 9, in which John refers to God's seed. And, uh, and I think we know what seed refers to, and it's, this is exactly the same. In fact, uh, what, I hope this doesn't bother anybody, but the Greek word is sperma for seed there. He's saying God has, God has, has given birth to us. And by referring to this seed, John claims that the children of God bear a genetic relationship to God. We're, it's that we're more than just adopted. We are transformed. It's not merely a case of adoption without genetic relationship, as great as adoption is. But the children of God are genetically related to God since we are born through His seed, as verse 9 says. And that we are called His children means we bear His name. That we are His children means we have His nature. Once I was a slave to sin, but now I'm a child of God. What, what an amazing truth to grasp and meditate on, to think that, that, uh, that I'm no longer who I was, but I have been reborn and I am a child of God. I'm not just called a child of God. That is what I am through Christ. And Christ has brought believers into this loving, intimate relationship of children with their father. And, and I think John was bringing this up because he's constantly bringing the idea of assurance to the believers. And I I think he's emphasizing through this the, the assurance that believers can have that they really are God's children. And you know, there is no place for either an inferiority or a superiority complex. You ever known somebody, you know, on either end of the spectrum, one person that always running themselves down and the other person who thinks they're more than they really are. But if I understand that I'm adopted, that he has, he has given birth to me, he has given me a rebirth, that, that he has made me a child of God. Well, now, first of all, there's no reason for inferiority because I am who I am. I'm a child of God. But also, it takes care of the superiority complex because I am who I am, but I didn't make myself who I am. That's what he has done. And, and so it teaches us humility, but also teaches us security and, and certainty. Um, now, as we read through verse 1 there and the verses following, we see a couple of things. And that is that becoming a child of God through this rebirth, it has profound implications for other earthly relationships. And he deals with a couple of them in this passage. The first one he indicates is that the world does not know us because it did not know our Father. To, to belong, here, this is so important for us to get because some of us struggle. We're going to get to this, to that idea. But, but to belong to Him will result in alienation from the world. Being God's children separates us from the world. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. The, the world does not desire to know God, and it, is even, it has even refused and continues to refuse to recognize Christ as God's Son. So, so believers can hardly expect the world to understand our special relationship with God as His children. And, and the thing is, so many Christians today, in America especially, in Western Christianity, are struggling. They're struggling because they're, they're trying to fit in. They're trying to just feel comfortable and, and fit in in the world. But we have to remember, this world is not our home. We, we don't belong here. We don't fit in here. And I'm here to tell you, we never will. And when you begin to feel like I finally fit in with the world, I'm telling you, that's a very dangerous place to be spiritually. Because if I, have, if I have the DNA of God, so to speak, the spiritual DNA, if I am a child of God and He has transformed me from a child of the devil to the a child of the, of the Father, 
then I'm not going to fit in with the rest of the children of the devil. And I don't mean that to demean people. I'm just saying that's how the Bible describes those who don't know Christ. So the, the sooner we come to grips with the reality that we do not, that we cannot, and we will not ever fit into this world, the sooner we can stop living for temporary earthly things and start living for eternity. Because so many of the things that people do, even Christians do, is to try to fit in with everything else going on around them. And if I realize that's a lost cause, it's hopeless, it's pointless, because this is not my home. Why would I want to fit in if this is not my home? And, and if I realize that, then I can stop trying to do that and I can start focusing on, on my relationship with the Father, my relationship with the family of God, and focus on things that are eternal instead of things that are, that are temporary. And you know, the truth is sometimes this alienation occurs even in our natural families. You know, Jesus talked about that, that because of him that uh, fathers would be pitted against children and mothers, children against mothers and all these sorts of things. Uh, and so sometimes it happens in natural families. There, there's a book called When the Church Was a Family written by Joseph Hellerman. And it tells the story of a young mother named Perpetua. And, and Perpetua, uh, her loyalty to Christ caused unrest within her natural family. In, in uh, North Africa in AD 202, Perpetua was a young woman who, and she kept an intimate personal diary as she sat in prison during the weeks leading up to her martyrdom. And her diary records the increasing estrangement between Perpetua and her earthly father, she was, she was charged with the capital offense of faith in Christ. That was her crime. And Perpetua's father came to her and tried to have her recant her faith in Christ so that she could return to her natural family. Well, Perpetua stood her ground in this contest of loyalties, even while her father appealed to her loyalty uh, to her family of origin. And this is what her, she records that her father said to her. He said, have pity on my gray hair. Have pity on me, your father, if I deserve to be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life, do not abandon me to be the reproach of men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother and your aunt. Think of your child who will not be able to live once you are gone. Give up your pride. You will destroy all of us. None of us will ever be able to speak freely again if anything happens to you. And that's from her diary. It's powerful. That's a lot of pressure right there, isn't it? Well, Ellerman observes that, that the realization that followed uh, the, this father, her father's appeal to family loyalty because Perpetual remained unmoved. And she recorded that soon after that her father no longer even addressed her as his father. He just called her a woman. That woman. Perpetuous father finally realized that his daughter was no longer a member of her, of her natural family. She had instead made an irrevocable commitment to the family of God. And she was no longer his daughter, but she was God's daughter. Become, becoming a member of the family of God. Now, that, that, that does not mean that we ought to disown our natural families. In, in fact, the truth is, biblically speaking, we bear godly responsibilities to our family, don't we? But we need to understand that if we choose to follow Christ, they may choose to do, disown us. With my own mother, I, I'm not going to take time to tell her whole story, but she got saved at a revival meeting in a little Assembly of God church in, in eastern Kansas. And uh, as a result of that, her, her father uh, told her, you quit going to that church. Or, or you're, or you, you, or you're not going to be part of this family. Well, she went and moved in with the pastor of the church's family because she had a choice to make, and that's a hard choice to make. So we know that it's possible that our family may disown us. But, but by giving us new birth, God, in our lives, has forever changed our ultimate allegiances because we belong to Him now no matter what. Verse two, 
Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he, as Jesus, is pure. So, believers are God's children now. We know that. We believe that. Not just sometime down the road in the distant future when Christ returns. We are God's children now. Uh, yet at the same time, we also know that, that God's people have a future, even, even though that future is something that we cannot fully grasp the, the scope of. We, we can't fully understand what that future is like. See, there is, a, there is a tension in our Christian experience that theologians often refer to as the already not yet part of Christian salvation. And, and, and that is that we are already today children of God, right? However, we do not yet realize or experience all the benefits that salvation promises for God's children. I know that's true because my body has not been redeemed. <laughs> As I'm standing here now, I'm feeling, you know, pain right back here in my back. And I've got, you know, I've got arthritis in my knee and other things that go wrong and so I know that that's not God's ultimate plan for me. Eventually, all that's going to be go away. So even though I'm a child of God now, I am not experiencing the fullness of that salvation, am I? Because that salvation is not just for my soul, it's also for my body. Thank God for that. Can I get an amen? So there's this already and not yet tension that's there. We are still in process. We're a work under construction we're a divine work of art that, that is not yet complete. By the way, it's not just our bodies either, because when he appears, when he changes us, we'll finally, we'll finally be free from sin. Anybody here free from sin yet? Okay, nobody? Okay, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. Uh, so, so that means that we're in this already not yet. We're already been we've already been declared righteous, and yet even though we do unrighteous things from time to time, there is a day coming when, we'll, when we will be free from that. So, there's this already not yet tension of Christian salvation. But uh, uh, we have been born into God's family and we presently enjoy God's kindness and blessings through Christ. But in the future, we will also fully share in his glory. And, and we can't even imagine what that means. That's what John says. He said, what we will be, we don't, I can't tell you. He says, I don't know. I don't know what we really will be. But uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what eye did not see and ear did not hear and what never entered the human mind, God prepared this for those who love him. And then chapter 13.12 of, of 1 Corinthians, For now we see indistinctly as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. So, so something amazingly wonderful is waiting for God's children, even more glorious than what we possess now. And listen, I believe that what we have now is so glorious that it's indescribable. And yet there's something even more glorious that awaits for us. Uh, but believers, we have a vision of it now, but it will be reality when our bodies are resurrected or when we're changed through the rapture, whichever, you know, if we're alive, because we know for, from Thessalonians that that uh, not, we will not all sleep when he returns, but, but we will all be changed. And so whether it's through resurrection or that through the rapture, whatever it is, we know that, that this will be a reality, even though we just have a glimpse of a vision of it through a, looking through a glass darkly, so to speak. And we don't know the specifics because it hasn't been revealed, but we do, do know what John says here is that when Jesus is revealed, we shall be like him. I like what John Edwards said. He said this. I love this quote. Grace is glory begun and glory is grace completed. Isn't that, isn't that awesome? Grace is glory begun. In other words, that's the beginning of God working his glory in us. And glory, when it's all done, is grace completed. That's so awesome. Jesus tells us that one day, John tells us that one day we will be like Jesus. And, and you know, there, that leads, I know I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but it leads some questions, you know, like, 
what will our life be like? What does that mean? What will it be like to be like Jesus? And the Bible doesn't tell us everything, but we do have certain clues that we can look at, at different places and say, and say, well, maybe this has some bearing on what it's talking about. We, we do know that our resurrection will include both body and soul. Uh, Christianity affirms that the body and the soul will be united after resurrection. And, and many Greek believers really struggled with believing in a bodily re resurrection. That was a real sticking point for them. Uh, they had no trouble believing that their spirit would go on. But, but we need to understand that my body is essential for me to be me. Uh, I want to think of it like this. I had a theology teacher explain it like this, and it's really had an impact that I remembered this. Uh, the, think, think of this. The, when it comes to the resurrection, God does nothing on a whim. So he didn't come up with the idea of the resurrection just because he'd say, hey, you know what would be neat? You know what would really be cool? No, that was, it wasn't that. Because there, there's a reason for the resurrection. And the reason is, is that when he created us as human beings, we are body, soul, and spirit. And when one part of that goes away, we face utter extinction. We face not being human anymore. That's why death is such an enemy because it, death is, it threatens annihilation if God doesn't intervene. And, and we were not created to be temporary. We were created to, to have an eternal relationship with the Father. So death is this, is this enemy. And so therefore, the resurrection becomes necessary because I cannot be me without, with part of me missing. Without my body, I am not the human being God created me to be. And so the resurrection is not a whim. It's not a, a cool thing that God said, hey, let's do this. The resurrection is necessary because God says, I will intervene, I will sustain you in the, in the meantime before the resurrection so that you don't face annihilation. I will sustain you, but there will come a day when I will reunite your spirit and your soul with your body and you will be made whole. So uh, that may be a little beyond what some of you want to wrestle with, but, but, uh, but it does include both body and soul. Uh, our, our resurrected body will be eternal. We know that. We will be recognizable in our resurrected body. I mean, the disciples knew who Jesus was. Um, yet it will be better than we can imagine. How many of you remember when you were really young and you felt really strong and really good? Yeah. yeah. It's going to be better than that. It's going to be better than that. It, 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 that body will be made to live forever. It, we, we, will, we will still have our personality, our individuality, but those things will all be perfected through Christ's work. So all of the good parts of my personality, the things that honor God will be there, but anything in my personality that reflects poorly on Christ, He will deal with it. It'll be gone. Uh, the, the Bible doesn't re reveal everything that our resurrected body will be able to do, but we do know it will be perfect. It will be without sickness. It will be without disease. It will be without pain. Can I get a hallelujah? Our, our resurrected body will, will not experience present limitations. Our present body, and I know you're going to say amen to this, that this is true. Our present body is perishable and it is prone to decay. In fact, you know, Scripture, uh, Paul said uh, that I'm wasting away day by day. And I'm like, amen, Paul, I, to I totally get that. Um, but our resurrection body will be transformed. Uh, our spiritual body will not be limited by the laws of nature in the same way that they are now. I don't know everything that it means. I don't know. I just know that like Jesus and his glorified body, the disciples were in a locked room. And they and they nobody opened the door and suddenly there was Jesus. Well, that's 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 not the normal laws of physics, right? So if we're going to be like Him, that's going to be our bodies are going to be different. I don't think we can grasp it. I don't think we understand it now even close. Uh, another last one is that our spiritual body will not be weak. We will never get sick and we will never die. And everyone who has this hope, this hope that we will be like Him, He says, everyone who has that hope purifies himself just as he is pure. 
uh, it, it, again, it's almost the sense of that, of that uh, uh, already and not yet tension. The children of God are and the children of God ought to be. The children of God are already genetically related to God our Father as His children. But we ought to be His children in the way we live and behave. People, people, and the people, you listen, we can only do that through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. That is not something we can accomplish. However, it's also something that we have to cooperate with the Spirit because uh, he, he, notice he says, the, everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Now, now I can't really purify myself, but, but what, I, what I believe he's talking about here is that we work in tandem with the Holy Spirit because just because I become a child of God and just because the Holy Spirit takes, uh, begins to indwell my life does not mean that I stop making decisions for myself, Right? So that means to purify myself means that I listen to the voice of the spirit when he says, don't go there, don't do that, walk away from there, change this, this, this relationship, walk away from that relationship, whatever it might be. I listen to what he says and then I purify my, my, myself by actually taking action on that through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So it, it's an ongoing pro process that begins at rebirth, and it continues until the day Jesus returns. And, and the beauty of it is this. Here, here's the real reason we do it. Uh, well, two, two things. One, we mentioned last week. One is that when Christ returns, when we walk this way, when we're walking, living this way, when we're growing in our holiness and purity and these sort of things, when Christ returns, we will not be ashamed. The second thing is, that the purer his people become, the clearer will be the view of Jesus for everybody else who's looking. So the more I grow in purity and holiness, the more the world can see Jesus instead of me. That's, that's, that's to me is the beauty of it. And he says, he says, talks about this hope that we have uh, that, that offers John, John's readers a reminder that our spiritual lives are in process. Hope, hope means, we, we use it differently. In our English language, when we say that we hope something happens, we think of it like, I don't know, it may, may happen, it may not, but I sure hope so. I'm, I'm crossing my fingers and hoping so. But that's not the biblical idea of hope in the New Testament. Hope in the New Testament means a confident expectation an anticipation of future blessing. I, I think a great picture of that is when a child or it could even be a pet, you know, when that, that child is at home and they know the, the time of day when, when daddy comes home. And, and so they, they sit there, they'll get, crawl up on the sofa and look out the window and watch the driveway. And as they're watching the driveway, they're doing it because they know this is the time when daddy comes home. That's the picture of biblical hope. He's not sitting there saying, I don't know if daddy's coming home or not. He's watching because he fully expects daddy to appear at any moment. And it's that anticipation of waiting on what they believe is absolutely going to happen. That is hope in the Bible. So we have this hope, and he reminds us that, we're, that, that, they, that we are purified from sin by Christ, and then we're to continue purifying ourselves through the work of the Holy Spirit and the washing of the Word uh, as we work out our salvation during our time on earth. And, and Christians trust in the hope promised to them, and, he, and the hope is this, that we will see Christ face to face, and we will be made completely perfect. That's the hope we have. Verse 4, everyone who, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawless, lawless, excuse me, lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So he says sin is lawlessness. He gives us this basic definition of sin. And we can, we can 
look at the word sin. There are different words that are often used in the New Testament, but the most common one, Greek word for sin, means missing the mark. The idea is that there's an arrow, you know, like a I mean, target up there, and say you're shooting an arrow or shooting a gun at the target, and if you miss the target, that's sin. You miss the mark. That God sets a target for us, and we miss the mark. Now, here's, here's what we really got to understand is that when we miss the mark in sin, it's not like here's the bullseye and oh, we just barely missed off to the side. No, no, we, we missed the whole target altogether. We're not anywhere near the target. We're way off to the side somewhere, nowhere near it. That's how we miss the mark in our sin. But, but God's law gives people this mark or this standard. Uh, if God doesn't tell people what they should be like, then they'll never realize how sinful they are. That's why God gave the law, so that we would see how bad off we are, so we'd understand how badly we need a Savior, and we'd understand how how uh, how horrible our sin really is. I mean, think about this. I don't, you know, in the Old Testament, when they're constantly the priests are constantly killing these animals and sacrificing them and. And if, I don't know if you've ever been around a slaughterhouse or anything, but it's, it's not a pleasant smell. So, you know, the smell of the temple there would not have been a pleasant uh, smell at all. The smell of blood, the smell of these freshly killed animals and all these sort of things. But, but year after year, thousands upon thousands of animals are killed. And it was, it was not God saying, Hey, I want you to do this to appease me. It was God's way of saying to us, I want you to see how horrible your sin that this is what it costs. This is what it costs. And so we, we see how crooked we are because of the, of the straightness of the law. You know, you can see how crooked a line is by putting a straight edge next to it. You know, you can draw a line and you can say, that looks really straight. And then you get a ruler and you say, oh, well, that's not so straight after all. The law helps us to see how crooked our lives really are in comparison to God's standard. But, but lawlessness, as he says here, that word means a lot more than just the absence of law. We would think that's what it means. Lawless means no law, but that's more than that. Because the, 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 the expression behind the term lawlessness means opposes the law of God. So it's not without law, it's an opposition to the law. Lawlessness is a defiant disregard and rejection of God's rightful rule as Lord over your life. Lawlessness is rebellion. In your practice of sin, you rebel against your rightful king and say, I hate your law. I will not keep your law. Sin is nothing less than personal treason against the sovereign of the universe. In fact, you know, Paul talks about the man of lawlessness, whom we know in Revelation as the Antichrist. He says, and we know that he will be a man who is actively rebellious against the law of God. So, so John is referring to those who, who keep on sinning and are such active rebels against God. See, what he teaches us and what we need to understand, there is a difference between committing a sin and continuing in sin. Even the most faithful believers sometimes commit sins. Anybody here, you still commit sins, right? Yeah. But a follower of Christ does not cherish a particular sin and choose to commit it. A believer who, who commits a sin, we, we know that, that even from 1 John, from chapter 1, we, we repent, we confess our sin, we find forgiveness. But those who continue in sin, by contrast, will not repent of what they're doing. Thus they never confess, thus they never receive forgiveness. And they live in opposition to God, no matter what religious claims they may make. So they may say, oh, I love Jesus. I, I'm a follower, I'm a Christian, but, I don't, but, I'm, but I'm not tied in, to, to the law. I'm going to live any way I want. Well, they're living in lawlessness, in rebellion. Now, besides the fact that sin is rebellion against God, Another reason that Christians should not sin is because Jesus came, as he tells us here, Jesus came to take away our sins. So to know of such a sacrifice 
And to know that he came and gave himself and suffered and, and bled and all, all to be able to take that sin away from us and then to keep on sinning completely dep depreciates that sacrifice in my life. It says I don't value that. It means nothing to me. To, to keep on sinning, it drags the reputation of Christ through the mud. And, and also to deliberately continue to sin after we know the truth. It also puts us in grave, grave spiritual danger. Listen to what Hebrews 10 says. This is one of the most frightening passages of Scripture I know of in the New Testament. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Boy, that is, that, I mean, that doesn't just send chills down your, your back. I just don't know. So John told us in verse 5 that Jesus came to take away people's sins. We'll read it again. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. So to be able to take away the sins of the world, that, that could only happen because there is no sin in him so that he could provide a suitable sacrifice. That's why John added it. So do not miss this. This is so important. He could do what he did because he is who he is. He could do what he did because he is who he is. In him is, was, is no sin. His sinlessness is part of what qualified him to provide the needed sacrifice, which is why his lack of sin is a uh, consistent theme that resounds throughout the Bible. And we know under the Old Testament law, sacrifice uh, the sacrificial system, Jews offered uh, a lamb without blemish as a sacrifice for sin. And Jesus, we know, is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and so he is that unblemished lamb. He has uh, lived a perfect life and sacrifice, sacrificed himself for sin so that people can be completely forgiven. He suffered for our sake, bearing our sins to make us acceptable to God. And only he, only he, could bridge the gap between the sinless God and sinful people. Because he is a person, he was a human being, but because he was sinless, he could build a bridge between the sinless God and the people who, happened, who were also sin, sinful. So verse six though, logically and necessarily flows from verse five, because we just said he appeared so he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. Then verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Think, think of what he's saying here. Because there is no sin in Jesus, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. That's the point he's making. In fact, if one does continue in a pattern or practice of sin, there's another logical and necessary conclusion that must be drawn, and that is everyone who sins, everyone who keeps on sinning, has not seen him or known him in a personal saving relationship. And John's theology is absolutely flawless here. This is what he's saying. If the sinless Son of God appeared in history to take away sin, how is it possible to abide in him and abide in sin at the same time? Because he came to take that away. And the answer is you can't. It's impossible. Now, now some have, have understood verses 6 and 9 to affirm sinless perfection in this life. There are certain uh, belief systems that say that, that God's will, that he, he will uh, bring us to a place of sinless perfection. But, but that would contradict what John has already said in chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, and much of what we know. Experience tells us that every Christian will fall into sin from time to time. You know, maybe we do pretty good with the big sins of murder and, you know, those kind of things. But... It, maybe it's impatience or worry or inappropriate anger or jealousy or lack of contentment or lust. There's always some kind of failure present. But the use of the present tense verb in verses 6 and 9 help us see what John is saying. Here's what he's saying. Because of the new birth, we have a new nature. Because Christ has taken away our sins, we have a new liberty and freedom. Sin no longer dominates us or enslaves us. Sin is no longer the character and conduct of my life. He's saying, because I now abide in Christ, I may fall into sin, but I will not walk in it. 
See the difference? Sin will not be my habit. Sin will not be my normal practice. I no longer love sin. I hate it. I no longer delight in sin. I despise sin. That's one of the great things that when you come to Christ, things that you used to love to do and you would, you would rejoice in it. I mean, like, man, you know, before I got saved, I'd do some crazy things and I'd get together with my buddies and we would talk about the time we had and we would rejoice in all the sins that we did. Then after I got saved, anytime I fell into any of those kind of things, I wasn't rejoicing in it. I hated it. My whole attitude toward that sin had changed. Let's go on to verse 7. We're going to run out of time. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. These are all, all tying together with the same kind of theme. Uh, when people do what is right is because they're righteous. That uh, does not mean that doing righteous things makes people righteous. We've already talked about that. I'm not going to go into that again, but it just means that because righteousness has been given to us by Christ, then that naturally leads to doing righteous acts. Um, it, it, another way to think of it actually is, is the uh, a tree that bears good fruit is a good tree. But think about this. The fruit doesn't make the tree good. The fruit just shows you that the tree is good. That's the relationship between salvation and works. When, when people keep on sinning, he says it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. Satan is the founder of lawless, lawless rebellion against God. Therefore, when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. Now, the devil cannot create or produce children, but people become his children by rebelling like him and imitating him. But he says... And this is where it ties in with what we just finished talking about in the previous passage. Jesus came to destroy these works of the devil. And John's point is that Christians cannot be involved in what Christ came to destroy. Jesus is clearly opposed to sin. And if we claim to be followers of Jesus and children of God, then we cannot be involved on a continual basis and devoted to and walking in and living in those things to which he is adamantly opposed. So here's, here's where it boils down, what it boils down to. Think about this. The decision to sin or not to sin is really a decision to reflect the character of Christ or the character of Satan. That's really what it is. We can't keep, keep on sinning. Verse 9, i got to hurry. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed, there's that passage I mentioned earlier, remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Uh, with, without the new birth, it is impossible for us to live like new people. Without the new birth, sin will dominate us. Satan will have his way in us. Hate and not love will fill our hearts. However, as a result of, an, of the new birth, the Bible says that we cannot make a practice of sinning because we've been born of God. This is the theme of this whole section through verse 11 that he's talking about. He's saying, he's saying to us, uh, because, because the false teachers were saying, uh, the body means nothing. We have this greater knowledge, this Gnosticism. We have this revelation, this new teaching, this new uh, knowledge. And, and part of that, where they were saying, the body means nothing. And so many of those began to say, it makes no difference what you do in your body because the body's gonna, gonna perish and it means nothing. And so just do whatever you want because your body doesn't mean anything. And, and John is saying, no, that's not true. He's saying, our bodies will be changed. Our bodies do matter. And what we do with our bodies, the actions we take, reflect who we belong to. That's the point he's trying to make. Uh, he, he's saying Christians cannot be involved what the, what Christ came to destroy. Um, the flesh is our internal foe and the devil is our external foe. So we now in Christ wage a titanic spiritual war on two fronts. But don't let that scare you. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. 
Because the warrior lamb of Revelation chapter 5 who defeated sin is also our champion. And he has already defeated Satan. The devil is doomed, even if he won't admit it. So those words bring both comfort and humility to us. We may stumble and fall on occasion, but we know that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And if we, as he said in chapter 1, if we confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us that sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that because of what he has done, we don't have to continue in sin. We don't have to be dominated by sin anymore. Anymore. No more. Uh, Verse 10. Let's skip over here. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. And from the beginning is likely referring to the when he preached the gospel to them. We should love one another. Now, now John here, he spoke in absolutes. He offered no middle ground here, does he? He says a person either belongs to God or he belongs to the devil. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area here. Uh, the, the conclusion of the matter is that believers can tell who the children of God are and who, who the children of the devil are. And the way to tell the, who the pretenders are is to see one of two things to see whether they obey God's commands and whether they love other Christians, which by the way, was one of Jesus's commands. What did Jesus say in John 14, 15? He said, if you love me, you will what? You will obey what I command. So his commands are numerous, but the main, the, the, the two main ones were love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And so he, he said, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So, so, all, all Christians who, you know, every Christian I know claims to love Jesus. I've never met a Christian who would not say, yes, I love Jesus. But there's an old saying, and I know you've heard it. The old saying says, the proof is in the pudding. You know what I'm talking about? And so you can say, I love Jesus. But, but, but if you are not living in obedience to God, and you are not loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, then I'm reading what John says here and say, you're not a child of God. As much as you think you are, you're not. Those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus will show evidence of their salvation through living an obedient life to Christ and by loving their brother and sister in Christ. So the question is, with those criteria, we have to ask ourselves, do I love Jesus? Or is it just something I say? So, um, obedience is the first one. The other evidence that he gives is that we're truly God's children is that we love our brothers and sisters in God's family. Uh, how many of you have ever special ordered a new new automobile? I'm not talking about, you know, you go to the... To the lot and get one there, but you special order it. So you get all the things that you want exactly the way you want. Well, you know, if you've ever done that, that there are certain features that are considered standard equipment. And then there's a lot of other things that are listed as optional, right? And so you start off with the standard equipment. And if you desire, you can add or maybe upgrades other options, whatever you're willing to pay for. Well, here's what I want to say. In the Christian life, loving others is standard equipment. It's not optional. Which, which by the way, tells me that it's not just a feeling or an emotion because I cannot, I cannot make myself feel or have specific emotions. It means it's something that I do. It's a choice that I make. It's not optional, even though a lot of people act like it is. Demonstrating love is our obligation, but it's not easy because we, it's our obligation regardless of feelings, irrespective of circumstances, and despite how unlovable a person might be. Anybody know anybody that's unlovable? Don't, don't point, don't nudge with elbows, but anybody know somebody that's kind of unlovable? They're hard to love. Anybody? Nobody knows anybody like that? Yeah, okay. I know you do. 
Well, it, we still don't have an option. In fact, those people are the ones that I really have to pay special attention to. And I have to make sure I intentionally go out of my way to love and serve them. And by the way, the feelings often change after I take action in love. My, my attitude toward that person will almost always change if I go out of my way to love and serve them. Theirs may or may not change. I can't control that, but mine will. So consider the people God has placed in your life and ask yourself, is my love for them characterized by cautious restraint? Am I, if I stand back, do I keep them at arm's length or do I pour out my love at full strength on those around me? That's the question. And that's an earmark of being a follower of Jesus. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we do thank you for the lavish love that you poured out on us, that we not only are called the children of God, but we are the children of God. And Lord, what that means is that we will reflect your nature. As your children, we will reflect your nature. So God, help us. If there are areas of sin in which we struggle, I pray God you'd help us to... to get those under the blood, to confess those areas, to, to deal with those. And, and God, that if, if I need more help, if I need to, to, to confess it to others in the body, if I need to become accountable, Lord, that I'll do whatever I have to do to get free from those things. But God, most of all, I just pray that you would just purify us and help us to hear your voice and to make choices that honor you. And that as, as you work in us to purify us and we make those choices in a in, uh, uh, under the empowerment of your spirit, that we would be purified more and more and more so that the world would see the purity of the Jesus that we serve. Lord, help us to be truly children of God and let our obedience to, the, to your law, uh, uh, obedience to your word and our love for, the, for, the, for you and for the church, let it, let it be something that reflects to this world that it, what it means to be a follower of Christ. And let that spur hunger in their hearts to say, I want that kind of love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.